This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. What goes up must come down. Well, not if you put your money into bricks and mortar these last 50 years. The only way has been up, barring the odd economic hiccup along the way. And we're having one of those right now, with house prices on the slide lately. But there are still plenty of voices in our media telling you, you can double your money. Property in New Zealand has doubled every 10 years, so an investment property purchased today could give you a significant tax-free profit over the next 5 to 10 years. Also, the decider between the men in green and the men in black this weekend was much hyped by the media, but we look at other clashes in this test series that didn't get so much attention. I reckon actually he probably should have gone off for an HIA. He was bleeding from a cut under his eye, but he got up and played on. But before all that, plenty of people are saying these days it's time to just move on from the pandemic because everyone's over it. But COVID is still spreading and killing as fast as it ever has here. So what do we really need now from our media? ABC News with Glenn Lauder. Health experts say some people are naturally disengaging with the pandemic and are becoming more complacent about COVID-19. Cases and hospitalisations are again on the rise. And while many Australians are now eligible to have their fourth COVID vaccination, almost 30% are yet to have their third. Well, that was the story that led the news for the ABC in Australia last Tuesday afternoon. And if you substitute Australia for New Zealand and tweak that stat a little, well, you probably could have run that in a news bulletin here. A professor of public health at the University of Sydney, Julie Leesk, says many people want to get on with their lives, despite the health advice. They feel like the, you know, that vaccination stuff is behind them. It's sort of very 2021. Well, that also echoes attitudes right here, right now. And after that, the ABC News carried the latest on a COVID-stricken cruise ship. More than 100 crew and passengers on the Coral Princess, which is due in Sydney tomorrow, are infected. Everyone who's tested positive is isolating on the ship and of the identified cases, only four are passengers. Now, if anything illustrates the desire to move on from COVID, it's taking a cruise on a ship likely to have COVID cases aboard. So what should we expect from the media serving people who increasingly also want them to move on, even though COVID-19 hasn't? Hayden Donnell now reports. Well, the pandemic's over for all intents and purposes, but we're still having to deal with this nonsense. Isn't that ultimately why we're feeling miserable? Because actually, we just want to break. If I was in government, what I'd do right now is I'd be like, green setting, guys, go for your life, do what you want, party, party, whatever, just for the mental break from it. That's News Talk ZB's Heather Duplissy Allen on her show last week. The announcement that the pandemic is over would have been news to the families of the eight people reported to have died with COVID-19 in New Zealand that day. But Duplessis Allen is far from an outlier in wanting to place a still raging pandemic in the rearview mirror. Recently, a senior staff executive sent staff a memo telling them their audience is, quote, over COVID and has, quote, actively moved on from COVID content. It implored them to find cracker non-COVID stories on topics including cons, crime and safety, the cost of living, NZ culture and stuff everyone is talking about. Stuff's audience is part of a much wider group that's apparently actively moving on from COVID. National leader Christopher Luxon recently returned from a whirlwind overseas tour with this report. Um, what I can say to you is it's interesting to me that I've just come back from Singapore, Ireland and the UK. Uh, in most of those places we didn't have a single COVID conversation. In places like Ireland there's no mask wearing at all. 
that's all true. Many places around the world have dropped their COVID restrictions. But even if we are determined to ignore it, COVID has remained stubbornly real and is continuing to cause equally real harm. In the United States, hospitalizations and reinfections are rising with the increasing prevalence of the BA5 strain of Omicron. In the UK, about 13,000 hospital beds are currently occupied by COVID patients. Hospitals are dealing with staff absences, exhaustion, persistent backlogs and problems discharging patients. And the UK government is considering bringing back restrictions if the situation gets any worse. If that all sounds familiar, it's because pretty much the exact same story is playing out here. This is Association of General Surgeons President Rowan French on RNZ's Morning Report, talking about the number of elective procedures being delayed or cancelled amid a wave of COVID and winter flu. Is this as bad as you've ever seen it? Um, so I've got about 15 years as a consultant. It's certainly the worst I've ever seen it by a long shot. Um, not many of us felt like celebrating last Friday, um, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and I've got colleagues who are out 25 years and they say the same thing. So I certainly think, and we don't say that lightly, but I think it is the worst we've ever seen it, particularly with respect to our ability to uh, treat our patients' elective conditions. French went on to say that COVID patients are taking up a lot of the beds that would normally be used by people recovering from surgery, and he can't see an end in sight to the crisis. There's a jarring mismatch between this kind of talk and the concurrent loud harping about the need to move on from COVID. That's producing cognitive dissonance, not just in the public, but amongst media commentators, some of whom are now bobbling between berating our minimal remaining efforts to mitigate COVID-19 and lamenting the damage being caused by the uncontrolled spread of COVID-19. In some cases, these mental oscillations can take place in mere hours, as in the case of Newstalk ZB Wellington host Nick Mills. This is him on the morning of July 6. Michael Baker, let us get on with our lives you go back to your lab, do some intelligent work, get paid truckloads of money for doing it and live in an extremely flash house. But for me, I don't want to hear from you anymore. I want to get on with my life and our life. And here he is on Duplessis Allen's panel show, The Huddle, later that day. I'm absolutely terrified because it could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. I really do believe that. I think it, in all, all aspects... If we have to go back, and it'll all be based on hospitals going to have to be overcrowded. This, these numbers are terrifying. I really am concerned. Maybe if Nick Mills had listened closer to Michael Baker, his research on BA5 wouldn't have come as such a nasty surprise. To be fair to these hosts, their contradictory approach to COVID is pretty relatable. Even without any hard data to hand, it's safe to say many people have had it up to here with the pandemic. They want it to be over, and some of us are prepared to live in a state of suspended disbelief to act like that's the case. But COVID isn't over, and now many leading experts are saying it may never be. Last week, the project commissioned a poll which showed 38% of people agree with those experts. They believe COVID is here for good. Afterward, presenter Carnor Lloyd quizzed epidemiologist Tony Blakely about those results. As we heard in the poll there, most people think COVID is here to stay forever. Do you think that that is accurate? Uh, it's possible. It's rolling on. So remember influenza in 1918. We still get influenza every year. This is a coronavirus. It could keep coming up every year. Blakely is among a number of epidemiologists and healthcare workers who have gone to the media lately to deliver the message that there's still a pandemic on. 
On last weekend's episode of News Hub Nation, Otago University's Michael Baker compared COVID to the inconvenient truth of climate change, another global threat that demands real change and ongoing action to mitigate. He went on to link COVID precautions to another common sense safety measure. So if, if you go out when you um, have this infection and you affect your friends and family and other people, you are going to be killing some people, just like drinking and driving. Over at the spin-off, microbiologist Susie Wiles stuck with the driving metaphor, imploring people to make popping on a mask as natural as clicking in your seatbelt. This recent flurry of cautious messaging stands in stark contrast to much of the media coverage over the last few months. Despite the fact that 10 to 20 people per day have been dying of COVID-19, that's had a muted response outside of the pro-forma coverage of the Ministry of Health's 1pm press releases. When COVID has been covered, the death toll has sometimes been superseded in the news by complaints from businesses about the few restrictions that still remain. Maybe that's not such a surprise. News organisations have a powerful commercial incentive to give their customers what they want, and as Stuff's executive said, audiences have moved on. But like a drunk party guest at 3am, coronavirus doesn't care that you're tired of it and you want it to leave. A month ago, Newsroom's Mark Dalder made that point in a prescient piece headline, COVID isn't over, it's just getting started. He joined me to talk about how the media can cover a huge problem that's not going away, even if it's not getting the clicks it used to. There's a general attitude that COVID is over, essentially, right? You know, the, the word post-COVID appears in so many headlines and stand-firsts and subheads these days, you know, without challenge or, or controversy. That seems to be the general attitude that we are post-COVID. Obviously, sort of BA5 in the surge in cases has changed that, uh, but... For many months after the March peak, that was just the consensus, I guess. Isn't that just wrong? I mean, any objective analysis of the pandemic would say that it's been worse than it's ever been, and it's been worse than it's ever been for months now. Partly it's taking hints from government and, and officials, right, who we moved to orange the amount of data that comes out in, in regular releases from the Ministry of Health sort of shrinks a bit. The focus is no longer on cases, it's now on hospitalizations and deaths. And and I think once the downward trend started there, people kind of assumed, oh, it's going to get so low eventually that we won't really notice it. But they never actually stopped to see whether it did get that low. You know, you got to a point sort of mid-June where people were saying, hang on, how are we still having uh, 10 to 12 people dying every single day? Aren't we supposed to be past this? And I think there was a general... Uh, kind of discomfort, particularly in June, which was, you know, two months now after the peak, two, three months even. And I think there was a bit of a turning point there where people started to, to realize, oh, living with COVID isn't going to be like living before COVID or living without COVID. It really means it will be here and it will continue to have a toll on us or take a toll on us. You know, any objective uh, look at the numbers from June, which was when we were at our lowest point, 10 deaths a day, 3,000 deaths a year is a, a lot. It's six times more than the flu. And if you asked, I think anyone stopped anyone on the street and said, what do you think of 3,000 COVID deaths a year? Would, are we post-COVID if we're in that scenario? I think most people would say, no, that's that's nothing like post-COVID or nothing like what I thought it would be. Do you think it was almost an attempt to will post-COVID into existence? You know, maybe from the media, but also from the public. Is there just a sense that this is too depressing? Well, I think we were poorly served, I think, by media coverage after the peak of the uh, first Omicron wave. 
there was no looking forward into, you know, what's this going to be in the short term or the long term. There was just this, all this focus on what would happen when Omicron peaked, and then it did, and nothing filled the void after that. Um, and so I think it's quite natural for people to assume that COVID is over. It's happened overseas. You saw countries saying, okay, we've got to the point now we're living with it. And then a new surge comes and new restrictions have to be imposed or there's a new vaccine, that, uh, you know, a new booster that everyone's taking or, or whatever that shows that the pandemic really isn't over. On a personal level, do you kind of get that people just haven't wanted to hear that? You know that they're over it, they're sick of it? I, I do understand that. Uh, and particularly when you're thinking about the second wave and people thinking about what it means for social events and school holidays and vacations and things that they were planning for July and August and, and going, well, you know, I, I thought we'd be done with this by now, but it isn't a good reason to look away from reality. I mean, I, I may be aided by the fact that I write a lot about climate change as well. And boy, would it be nice to be able to just sort of say, oh, it's not happening. I think we're done with climate change. But the reality is we're not. And I think that's part of the job of the media, right, is to tell the hard truths because they're the truth. Do you think that maybe there's just been an unwillingness amongst parts of the media commentariat that were telling us Omicron is mild and we can just learn to live with the virus to actually contend with the reality of, uh, you know, their wishes coming true? The The tool that commentators can use that journalists can't use is to say, Essentially, I don't know whether this is true or not, but some people are saying uh, this, that, or the other. And we saw that early on in Omicron with the commentators writing that, you know, people are saying that Omicron is no more than a, a bad cold, which you can write that because you can't actually find a study that says that, right? If you're a journalist, it's a lot harder to minimize COVID because bound to certain sort of factual standards, right? And so I think instead we've seen you know, straight reporting from mainstream media coverage of COVID dwindled after that March peak uh, up until BA5 kind of reared its head again. There are, for that, three reasons. One, journalists are people, just like anyone else, not wanting to keep having to think about and write about and deal with COVID. And so there's an audience question. You know, you reported a, a couple months ago that Steph had sent out an internal email saying that the audience just wasn't there for COVID anymore. My experience as a journalist writing about COVID has been different, that my COVID stories are some of the most well-read stories that I, I do. But I work for a, a smaller independent outlet. We do in-depth stuff. Stuff has the mainstream audience to contend with. There's a point to which you should follow what audiences want and you shouldn't necessarily be trying to force something down their throats that they don't want. But with something like COVID, where it's such a huge, important thing that's happening and that's going to keep happening regardless of whether you write about it or not, I think that's where, you know, that that mission of journalism, journalism to tell the truth really comes in and overrides maybe some of the audience imperatives. And then the third thing about COVID is just we've gotten so used to covering it as a crisis. I don't think that uh, journalists have really figured out how to cover it as a daily issue, just like we cover all of the other daily issues that are, are really problematic, like crime and the road toll and healthcare and, and pressure on the health system from non-COVID things. But just because it's not a temporary crisis anymore doesn't mean that we should be ignoring it then. Stuff did send out this memo saying audiences have moved on from COVID. And I guess I have some sympathy for that because they kind of had, I guess. They they kind of been misinterpreting their data. 
And stuff does have these commercial incentives to give the customer what they want. They want to stay New Zealand's biggest news site. How do you navigate those commercial incentives to move away from what's an important and ongoing story? Not to comment on stuff's coverage in particular, but meeting those commercial incentives is important because it's what allows outlets to actually fund journalists to cover things like climate change and COVID, which maybe don't get all the readers that they should, uh, but which are really important to continue covering. It's just about striking the right balance between, you know, what your audience trends are in order to continue making enough money to hire journalists to do the public interest stuff. You know, to be fair, the stuff memo sort of said that there'd been a lot of focus on on COVID, that many journalists had been covering COVID for, you know, years uh, at that stage. You could read it as as saying COVID isn't the sole story anymore and we need to diversify our, our coverage. Um, and that, I think, is a, a good approach, but it doesn't mean stopping covering COVID entirely because COVID is, is still here. Just realistically, what would coverage of COVID as an ongoing crisis or an ongoing concern look like? A few things. One sort of the daily numbers updates, right? You know, when there's a a car crash that a number of people are injured or killed in, you know, that gets a a story in all of the local papers. And if it's in Auckland or Wellington or Christchurch, maybe it it ends up in national papers as well. And similarly for COVID, you know, when when we're at a stage where we are now, where uh, sort of 19 maybe people are dying every single day with COVID, it would be good to see reporting on the people who did die and, and sort of their struggles with the virus and so on. And it's not only about deaths either, of course. There are people, hundreds of people who are in hospital right now with COVID, and we don't really hear their stories nearly as much as we hear the stories of, you know, of hospitality owners or, or retail owners who are concerned about COVID restrictions. And then there's long COVID, right? We know that tens of thousands of people, maybe even hundreds of thousands uh, have long COVID or will have it by the end of the year. It's covered still in New Zealand as a bit of an oddity uh, when really it's going to become a relatively mainstream experience to have had within a couple of months. And there's a lot of good journalism that could be done around that. The other thing that covering COVID as an ongoing issue looks like is casting forward and trying to understand what's coming as you know a lot of people seemed quite surprised by BA5 uh, rocking on up in New Zealand but there isn't very much coverage on either the variant issue or that sort of research and development for the next stage of vaccines which is really really important if we do want to actually get to the point where we can say we're post-COVID or at least that it's it's no longer such a big deal. What about covering the level of death we are seeing daily as a scandal that is actually preventable in many ways. Is that something that we're missing a little bit outside of your reporting and a few others? Yeah, there's not really very much accountability journalism that that looks at holding the government accountable for essentially abandoning vulnerable people to the whims of the virus. You have this sort of very strange juxtaposition in in the gallery where, where the COVID minister will be asked by one person, are you concerned about BA5? It's it's starting to spread in New Zealand. Should we be increasing our restrictions? And then in the next breath, the next question is, why aren't we in green? When will we ever get to green? Do we have to wait until winter is over to get to green? I'm not sure that either of those really get to the heart of the, the present issue, right? Which is that the current settings aren't aren't even aligned with a non-BA5 world and what government's job is in in doing that. But... 
if you think about all the questioning, the, the many weeks, I think, uh, of uh, stories about gangs and crime and gang shootings and so on, you know, those have a real impact on people. But the scale of it as compared to COVID-19, it doesn't seem like the media focus is necessarily proportional. That was Mark Dalder, senior political reporter at newsroom.co.nz, who covers COVID-19 for the site, talking there to media watchers Hayden Donnell. As you heard there, the health system's under huge strain at the moment and the shortage of nurses is making it worse. This week, a group claiming to represent unvaccinated nurses, Nurses for Freedom, hit the headlines after protests calling for an end to vaccine mandates for health workers and an appeal to be allowed back onto the wards, even though their own Nurses Association of New Zealand said they don't want them back. On Midweek Media Watch this week, I talked about the coverage of all that with Karen Hay. We also talked about the latest public funding for new journalism projects and jobs, a road rage TV show that was taken off the air after complaints, and a strong objection to a new reality TV show that hasn't even aired yet. TVNZ, like the straightest up and down network, Boy Island on TV, like... And let's encourage a bunch of f***ing dudes over three chicks on television. I just, it just, oh. That and more in this week's Midweek Media Watch, which you'll find on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we mentioned in passing that the chief economist at the Reserve Bank, Te Putia Matua, Paul Conway, had told the National Property Conference something property investors probably didn't want to hear. Property prices might be moving back to what he called roughly sustainable levels in the medium and long term, and the Reserve Bank has estimated the average Kiwi home could fall 15% from the recent peak in the coming years. Now, it's predicted corrections before and been wrong, but in that speech, Paul Conway reckoned property might not be the one-way bet it's been for generations of Kiwi investors in the past. Now, as we mentioned last week, that wasn't widely reported at the time, but this week the whole speech has been reprinted in full in the latest Listener magazine, along with an editorial by Listener editor Karen Shearer, pointing out that even the real estate industry's own stats show that prices have fallen by 8% already, and there's been plenty of media coverage of that trend lately. Now that we're seeing headlines that house prices are going down and could keep falling, it's of course enough to panic current homeowners and excite hopeful first home buyers. So, what's the truth of the hype behind the headlines? That was Francis Cook, the investments editor at the online subscription news service Business Desk, introducing the latest episode of her podcast, Cook the Books, with the catchy title, Is the Housing Market About to Crash? Well, for an answer, she went to Infometrics media-friendly economist Brad Olson, and he reckoned house prices would probably fall a bit for the next 12 to 18 months. But what about that long term? 
But after that, you get the feeling that maybe house prices do stay in a more stable position. Maybe they don't go down all that much further, but they possibly don't have all that much further to rise either. We've almost done you know, five years' worth of growth over two years, so there's a, a, perhaps a period of calmer seas for the housing market over the next two to three years. Fascinating stuff. Well, we'll have to have a chat in a year or 18 months and see how right you were. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> So don't bank on past profits from property in the future seem to be his take. Now these days, Business Desk is owned by NZME, which has a business news operation of its own at the New Zealand Herald, and a separate online platform devoted to news and ads about property called One Roof. Now One Roof stories about the property trade also appear alongside the Herald's business ones on the Herald's own website, and last weekend one of those had a headline which would have you believe that housing had crashed already. What the bottom of the housing market really looks like. But that turned out to be about Aucklanders and overseas buyers interested in buying places in the Deep South and even Rakiura Stewart Island. Bet it got the clicks though. Elsewhere on the One Roof site was this headline. Double your money. New Zealand's surprising house price jumps. Now this story said that One Roof's own property columnist Ashley Church, a professional property investor, had run the numbers on median house prices all the way back to 1990 to see if the so-called 10-year rule, that New Zealand properties double in value every decade, was really true. And according to Ashley Church, the results were astounding. The doubling of house prices that some property commentators talk about now can be empirically proven to be true. The numbers weren't always exactly 100% up, he said, but if you pick two dates 10 years apart, they were mostly not far off, according to his sums. And he did point out that it has taken a little longer to double up in recent years with the surge in prices. But what about 10 years on from the uncertain times of right now? Well, a couple of other experts said that another doubling was uncertain, and one pointed out that even if your property does double by 2032, well, so will all the others, so all the equity in yours will have to go straight back into another if you still need somewhere to live. But One Roof's Ashley Church was much more positive. When we look back on house price growth in 2030, we'll find that house prices are still doubling, but that it's taking longer, perhaps 14 to 15 years, for this to happen. Now, along with Business Desk and One Roof, NZME also owns the radio network News Talk ZB, and every Sunday it has the One Roof Property Hour, featuring its go-to contributor, Ashley Church. And last Sunday, they also asked him, do house prices really double every decade? And he said there was no reason to be nervous about buying now. What I'd be encouraging people to take from this is that, uh, particularly people who are worried about where we are right now in the market and what's going on and what's been going on over the last few months, is to actually take some confidence in where things are going in the medium to long term. Because what this basically says, and remember during all of this 40 years that we're we're looking at here, during this 40-year period we're looking at here, all sorts of things took place. The GFC, the stock market crash in the 80s, the Asian financial crisis, the dot-com crash, they all took place during this period and this phenomenon still took place. So there's absolutely no reason to believe that this is going to be any different. So was Ashley Church really just telling would-be investors what they wanted to hear, which would also, of course, be good for his business? Well, he did point out that big economic shocks can disrupt the pattern, but there was no such reticence near the end of ZB's One Roof Property Hour last Sunday in this advert featuring another high-profile professional property investor. 
Property in New Zealand has doubled every 10 years, so an investment property purchased today could give you a significant tax-free profit over the next 5 to 10 years. This can help pay off your mortgage and give you cash for the future. You can start by using a small portion of the equity in your home to guarantee the deposit on a new build property and, of course, to work with the experts. Now, the expert in this ad was Nikki Connors from the company Propeller Property, who calls herself the queen of Kiwi property investment. For a free, no-obligation consultation, contact Propeller. So why haven't you called us yet? Well, if anyone is holding back right now, it might be because they're not convinced about the so-called 10-year rule in such uncertain times, but they also might have seen recent news reports that the IRD lodged an application just last month to liquidate Propeller Property and later two other companies associated with it. Now, Nikki Connors told Stuff recently this was heavy-handed from the IRD and she issued a statement saying that any unpaid taxes would be sorted out by mid-July. And the statement also said the problem had only arisen when others were running things at her company when she stepped back a bit for health reasons. And like other businesses, Nikki Connors said hers had been impacted by the pandemic. Though, as we now know, property prices soared during the pandemic and ought to have been pretty good for a property investment business. And when COVID hit in early 2020, no one could be sure that would happen, of course. But at that time, Nikki Connors told the NBR in May of 2020 they'd be safe as houses still in 10 years. Property has doubled every 10 years um, through four cycles, 40 years from the the 80s in New Zealand. And that um, is not disputed because that's actually a fact. So... Um, there is always going to be something. We didn't expect that it was going to be a pandemic, or some say they did. And in New Zealand, we do have this huge demand. The IRD's application to liquidate Propeller property is due to be heard in the High Court in Christchurch a month from now. But in a recent article about property seminars selling the idea of investing to people, NZME's One Roof Property Platform noted that Propeller Properties founder Nikki Connors is still running those seminars. And the message that property is still safe as houses is crucial for property companies like hers, of course, and also, it seems, parts of the media. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, the All Blacks Test Series against Ireland came down to the dramatic decider in Wellington this weekend after the guys in green thumped the men in black last weekend in a game the media dubbed the disaster in Dunedin. Pass it to Joey Carberry to do the honours. And Irish eyes are smiling for the first time. They have lowered the All Blacks in New Zealand. We're going to the decider next weekend in Wellington, 23-12. And among those reconsidering their choices after that was the Wellington Daily, the Dominion Post, which had marked the earlier Māori All Blacks win over Ireland, with a cartoon depicting one player scattering a smattering of green-clad rugby leprechauns under the word utu. Now, on last Monday's Dominion Post, editor Anna Fifield apologised unreservedly for a cartoon that many readers found to be offensive and should not have been published. Now, in the Herald that same day, cartoonist Guy Boddy did it a bit better, drawing two sad-looking All Blacks fans reading about the defeat in their ODTs, while a passing Irish rugby supporter cheerily wished them top of the morning, spelled M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. And among the morning-after assessments on the sports pages, Stuff's Mark Hinton and Paul Cully raised some key questions posed by that second test. Could and should the All Blacks sack the coach? Should the players cop the blame? 
Is there a quick fix? And is the true power of world rugby now in the north? But unmentioned were other questions that had also come up in the second test and had already been highlighted by Paul Cully himself. A month ago, he reported World Rugby's new so-called gold standard protocol. Any player who appears concussed should be replaced immediately and assessed. He said this new policy would reshape the rugby landscape and it had come after pressure from player welfare groups as well as harrowing accounts from former players. For example, Carl Heyman, the ex-All Blacks prop, who's been diagnosed with early-onset dementia in his mid-40s. But days after the new rules took effect, on July the 1st, Ireland prop Jeremy Luffman was back on 10 minutes after a hit to the head against the Māori All Blacks. Now, local media reported New Zealand rugby later blamed a gap in communications for that and left it there. But in the UK, a former medical adviser to World Rugby, Dr Barry O'Driscoll, said they were playing Russian roulette with players' brains. So what's happened in the last week or two with the head injuries, I think just proves that they are playing Russian roulette here. Now here, Paul Cully had also reported that reaction for stuff and World Rugby's strong rebuttal. But in Ireland, the media raised further questions after their captain Johnny Sexton played in last weekend's test after a big head knock in the first one. And then came two more gruesome head clashes in last weekend's test, both of which saw All Blacks punished. Well, the incident involving Lester Fai'inga Nuku happened right in front of me on the sideline, and he hit Mac Hansen really hard. Hansen was down and dazed. I reckon, actually, he probably should have gone off for an HIA. He was bleeding from a cut under his eye, but he got up and played on. It was Jason Pine on News Talk ZB's Sunday sports show last weekend. And there was no probably about it. The stricken Irishman really should have been off for a check at the very least. And of the later head clash that saw Angus Tavao sent off with blood running down his own head, Jason Pine said this. Why would a player go into a tackle which he came out of pretty much knocked out? By the letter of the law and the new and stricter world rugby laws, it's a red every day of the week. But in the high-collision, split-second nature of rugby, is this the right thing for the feel of the game? Well, never mind the feel of the game. What about the state of the players' brains? Everybody wants concussion minimised in the game. Of course we do. And the Northern Hemisphere sides have accepted World Rugby stance and got better with their technique than we have. Now, there was plenty about those head clashes and the talkback that followed, though most of it focused on whether the ref's punishment fitted the crimes and unfairly punished the spectators as well. Paying um, punters out there, they just they might as well not have ever gone. Now, that was echoed in one of the few post-match accounts in the media here that did address the second test head injuries. Writing in the New Zealand Herald, Steve Dean described the latest rules on head clashes and airborne collisions as abominable because they ignored what he called participant experience, meaning the fun of players and fans alike. But what about the safety of the players? Well, Steve Dean said it would be negligent not to make the game safer, knowing what we now know about head injuries, but he compared rugby under the new rules to the Netflix series Squid Game and that the apparently arbitrary elimination of participants who are in the wrong place at the wrong time ends up central to the plot and, in the case of a test rugby match, ruining it. On News Talk ZB last weekend, Jason Pine was at pains to tell callers griping about the punishments the All Blacks got that players' welfare must come first, but his concerns were echoed by just one guy, a former referee. So I've refereed in mostly New Zealand, but Australia, England, Ireland. I've even refereed in Samoa. And that smashing mentality no longer cuts it. And I can tell you now, the Northern Hemisphere refs 
are waiting for us to come up there with those. As one of your callers said, they now tackle on the chest and upwards. And that's what's going to happen. And we are going to be red-carded out of the game. This week, one Irish journalist who preferred not to be named told MediaWatch that he thought Kiwi media seemed much more concerned with winning than playing the game safely and fairly. So maybe our rugby writers and pundits should put their heads together, but just gently, to ponder that. That's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media in Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night on Lately with Karen Hay. And then back with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.